0: Untapped potential is a significant issue that our culture seeks to mitigate at all costs right we don 't want any untapped potential. we want to maximize everything um, we 're always looking to take advantage of any untapped potential and maximize it. Everything has to be tweaked everything has to be micromanaged right if there 's something left on the table and uh, it doesn 't go as well and we see that untapped potential someone 's to blame right whose fault is it? We have to ask whose fault is it when something happens like a sports team that fails the last six or seven games down the stretch who is supposed to go back to the Super Bowl like you know I'm an Eagles fan and so that was my life this football season (laughs) very disappointing untapped potential well people got fired right and so uh, that's one example of the need that we felt we have to maximize our potential Um, at least on paper there's this potential that needs to be maximized and you could say the problems then don't lie in the potential or the things that could be maximize, but actually the person stewarding the resources. So, for example, if you uh, gave me a, the most perfect piece of steak you could possibly imagine and asked me to steward it well, I would do all right. Like, I have this trash-picked grill on my back porch that's covered in snow right now because I didn't, I forgot to cover it. It'd be, it'd be probably fine. Um, you would be able to eat it. It would be edible. You might like it. But if you want to maximize that piece of steak, you got to give it to my brother, the drummer back here, Fabio. First couple decades of his life, grew up in Brazil. Like this guy has been barbecuing since he was in diapers. So uh, I've had the privilege of experiencing his barbecue. And let me tell you, he will maximize that piece of steak. Um, in a very nice charcoal grill. He even cleans it a certain way and fires it up a certain way. It's all this particular ways to do it. And uh, he will maximize it for you. Um, Just not all of you at once, you know, but um, he knows just what to do. And so when we consider, we come to chapter 13, and Jesus' ministry has been a mixed bag. The reception of Jesus' ministry has been a mixed bag. And it's worth asking the question, if Jesus is the Messiah, if his words are powerful and true, and he's the long-awaited prophet and priest and king, why hasn't hasn't it worked? There's so much potential in his, so much power in his message, but it hasn't worked. There's been rejection. If you look back, on chapter 12, just if your Bible's open there, you might be able to just, just cruise through there a little bit. We look back and we see Jesus calling uh, the, the Pharisees, the men who were anticipating, who were teaching the Bible, who should have known and seen the, the coming Messiah, a brood of vi- vipers, fruitless trees, right? He talks about the sign of Jonah for those who will reject the Messiah, the only sign they will get will be the sign of Jonah. Um, the Gentiles seen the queen of the south saw, saw Solomon and others see it. And something greater than Solomon is here and you're missing it. Right? And then we see uh, what we just saw last week. The rejection by Jesus' actual family. His blood. Family tension ending there in chapter 12. Um, Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister. My family doesn't even know who I am, Jesus is saying. So there's rejection. Of the Messiah. And if we turn to the end of chapter 13. If you just look down. Maybe a few pages there. The the, the verse 57 of chapter 13. It ends with these people in Nazareth. Where Jesus grew up. They were offended by him. And Jesus said to them. A prophet is not without honor. Except in his hometown. And in his household. And he did not do many miracles there. Because of their unbelief. So why is the Son of God and His teaching being rejected? What's wrong? Something's wrong. What's going on? Well, as you might know, I think you know the end of the story here. The rejection is actually part of the plan, right? Without Jesus being rejected, He doesn't get crucified. He doesn't die for the sins of the world. The Word of God is powerful. Jesus really is the Messiah, But the reality is he came for the sick, not the healthy. He came for those who needed a solution and knew they needed a solution and had ears to hear looking for that solution to their sin, not the earthly problems, not the problem of the Romans or whatever they thought their day-to-day inconveniences were that their idea of a Messiah had to come and fix. So those with ears to hear and eyes to see, soft hearts, receive that message with joy. But those who demand that he be the kind of Messiah that they want they reject Jesus. They rejected his message. And so when Jesus' kingdom and his message sub- uh, goes underneath and, and destroys the claustrophobic kingdom of our own selves, we have two options. We either submit to his work in subverting our kingdom, destroying our kingdom, submitting to him, or we set up even stronger. We harden ourselves and continue to rule ourselves In our own strength and in our own sin and so the parables in matthew starts in chapter 13 and this is the very beginning of the parables in matthew these parables begin to explain why things are the way they are why is jesus being rejected what is going on here why is the king of israel who came to save his people why is he being rejected by his people so the problem as we see in the the parable of the sower the problem isn't with the sower the problem is with the soil Hearts of the hearers. And I wanted to give you the the big idea of this right away. It's very simple actually. But since that's true, it's in the heart of the hearers. The big idea would be that the fruitfulness, any fruitfulness we see, is a result of God's grace. Any fruitfulness we see is a result of God's grace. Any result that's positive, that God's grace has penetrated our hearts, um, despite ourselves, like despite our own hardness. Um, The fact that we are receptive is because of God's grace. There's no room to boast, right? Not by any works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, as Titus says. So faithfulness, or fruitfulness, excuse me, is a result of God's grace. So the way this is laid out is Jesus gives the parable, the disciples ask him some questions about it, and then he explains the parable himself. So really Jesus preaches it for me, so this might be pretty short, we're just gonna, but he does it for me, which is, uh, I'm very thankful for. Um, but he, it's divided into three parts. He tells it, he ex- answers the disciples' questions about the unreceptivity of Israel's hearts, and then he explains it himself. So what I want to do is read the parable first, do a little bit of explanation, and then we'll get to the more application that Jesus unpacks later on. All right, so we'll start in verse 1. On the day Jesus went out of the house and was sitting by the sea, Such large crowds gathered around him that he got into a boat and sat down while the whole crowd stood on the shore. And so this house that he's at here, sitting by the sea, it was a house that he was just in with the disciples. The house that he was just in saying, these are my brothers and my sisters. These are my, this is my true spiritual family. And so he gets into a boat here and uh, such large cows gathered around him. And so he had to get into a boat and kind of back up. So it's sort of like an amphitheater in the water. Carries his voice across and the people were standing on the shore and he was able to to sit there. And uh, don't miss this um, in verse three when he told them many things in parables saying consider the sower who went out to sow. And the verb went out was there right there in 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 the verse one and two and Jesus verse one Jesus went out. And so that connection there is just the illustration showing us that he is the sower. Jesus went out to preach the gospel, and in his parable, the sower went out to sow. And so here he is going out to sow, going out to proclaim the good news to the people. And so he is the sower. So we read here in verse 3, Consider the sower who went out to sow. As he sowed, some seed fell among the path, and the birds came and devoured them. So I'm just going to stop at each one and just briefly explain and, and, and talk about this. It says, Back in that ancient times, the footpaths often went right through the fields. The fields were just divided up here and there. And so sometimes the footpath went right through. And so the sower would go out, the farmer would go out and be sowing. And there would, of course, be seeds that fall onto the footpath. And whether he tilled the ground first or tilled it later, you know, there's mixed uh, you know, accounts about which one happened first. But either way, the ground would have been tilled up so that the seed would go into the ground and be hidden from the bird's but the footpath would be exposed. And so any seed that fell off to the side and would bounce along the hardened path would be easily exposed to the birds more easily, and so it would be eaten quickly. So we see in verse 5, other seed fell on rocky ground where it didn't have much soil, and it grew up quickly since the soil wasn't deep. But when the sun came up, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. In this example, we see... uh, Just an example or uh, acting out of how the reality of Israel and the the geography underneath Israel and a lot of Jerusalem, if you go to Jerusalem, it's a lot of limestone. So in Galilee, it's very fertile, but underneath the fields are crops of limestone that might come up, uh, and it's possible that it rises up just below the surface, and you would never be able to tell. And so as the farmer's sowing, if that limestone is very close to the surface, that soil is very shallow. And so the soil will heat very quickly. It'll uh, heat up and get it'd be, create a good environment for seeds to grow up quickly, as we see in this passage. But what happens is the roots are not deep. The roots can't get enough water because they're running into that rock that's right underneath the surface. And so when the sun comes out, it zaps all the moisture out and the roots can't keep up giving nutrients and water into the actual plant. And so... The root system can't keep up and the plant would wither away in the sun. And so that's the shallow, the rocky soil where the rocks are preventing the roots from getting down deep and, and nurturing the plant. And in verse 7, this third type of soil, other seed fell amongst thorns and the thorns came up and choked it. And, you know, the reality is, it's pretty self-explanatory. The pre-existing thorns would have been sucking up all the nutrients. They already would have had their place and established and sucking up all the nutrients, not creating space for growth, not creating and allowing other nutrients to come in for these new plants. So choking out the the plants that the farmer desires, the sower desires to plant there. Then we see the fourth type in verse 8. Still other seed fell on the good ground and produced fruit. Some a hundred... Some sixty and some thirty times what was sown. Let anyone who has ears listen. And so, in this fourth type, the good ground produces fruit. And uh, this, this, there, you notice that there's three different ways that this uh, soil produces fruit, three different sort of yields. And the thirty times, the sixty times, and a hundred times. And as I was trying to do some research on this, I'm not. Uh, a gardener or a farmer or anything so but what I understand is that 30 fold is would be a seed that grows up and the plant produces more seeds and is able to plant and then those seeds plant and so that yield 30 times it would in that time would have been just about average it, and uh, 60 would have been really good and then a hundred fold would have been really excellent um, not necessarily miraculous uh, it would have been something that could have happened they're not out of the realm. Of, none of them are outside the realm of possibility or miraculous. Um, but it's interesting that they're varied. It's interesting that the good soil yields different, um, different yields, different varieties of uh, response from the seed, the same seed, and it yields differently. And so we'll get to that later, get to that application later, and as Jesus explains it. Um, but that's sort of the, the, the parable. And that he just gave the parable, and to the crowds, he did not explain it. All right, so we're going to see the disciples just kind of confused about this. The disciples are sort of confused. And so, G, but Jesus issues this warning, verse 9. Anyone who has ears, listen. Anyone who has ears, listen. And so a parable that he just gave and that he's going we're going to be in for a couple weeks here. The parable is a story or saying that on the surface it doesn't give a clear meaning. Like we all know the story, you've probably heard it many times. But if you've never heard it. You probably wouldn't exactly know what the referent is, what is what, right? It demands that the hearer be perceptive, that the hearer slow down and seek to understand. The hearer needs to be curious about the person telling the story, telling the parable. you have to interact with it in a humble way, in a way that is submissive to the one giving it. And so parables tend to polarize hearers. Uh, Either someone is drawn in and is curious and wants to understand more, or some are puzzled, some are even repelled if they think they understand it and reject it. While the, the, the good soil, those who are curious about it, receive enlightenment, receive understanding because they ask and they pursue Jesus and they understand. And so if there's no interpretation, as Jesus doesn't give an interpretation to the crowds, there's even more of a polarization and more divided response. And we're going to see throughout this chapter the effects that p- telling parables like this has on people. The enemies of Christ are confused or frustrated or they're offended and they get angry because they've already had this buildup of resistance to Christ, to build up a resistance to God and his work. Um, Yet his disciples have been called out and have seen Jesus at work and, and are seeking to follow him by faith, even imperfectly. They're seeking to follow him by faith. And so, as you can see, throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's this, in the beginning, there's this confusion among the enemies, some offense But it gets elevated as it goes on, and the resistance builds up until the final climax where Jesus is crucified. So here we're just in the beginning, and there's this mysterious nature of what he's saying and how he's explaining things. Uh, And so you might wonder about this untapped potential, wondering why Jesus just doesn't give to him straight, to say, hey, this is the gospel of the kingdom, take it or leave it, right? But he knows opposition's coming, he knows it's already come, he knows the plan of God, and and his purpose and his ministry in it, so... Opposition has to build. Opposition is part of the plan, which is hard for us to understand in the plan of God, as we'll see. Um, and the disciples are confused, because there's part of them that really wants Jesus to like be amazing, and everyone to love Jesus, and everyone to accept Jesus, right? And so they're confused, and they come up to Jesus here in, in verse 10. And they ask, Why are you speaking to them in parables, right? Why are you speaking to them in parables? And he answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but has not been given to them. For whoever has, more will be given to him, and he will have more than enough. But whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken away from him. So as we see this, is the reality, the big idea, that faith fruitfulness is a result of God's grace. It's the grace of Christ for us to even be able to understand the message. People on their own can never work out the truth of, of the gospel. We can never figure it out. It is completely other to us. If you look at all the religions of the world, then they're all based around works. If they're based around how can I figure out how to accomplish this or get to heaven or appease this or that God. The gospel is subversive to all of that. People can never work it out themselves. So to understand Jesus, you have to have Jesus in your heart placed as king. He has to be the one who explains. He is the one who is ruling and reigning in your heart. We need the grace of God in our lives to understand. So he says this. They have been given for you to know, but not to them. And for whoever has, more will be given to him. Right. So what he means by there is that whoever has faith, more, it will be grown. It will grow in their hearts as they continue to submit themselves to Christ. And you have more than enough fruit. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. That is a confusing statement if you read it five times fast. Uh, whoever doesn't have, even what he has will be taken away from him. And what I think he's talking about here is just the reality that uh, the, the Jewish faith uh, in, the, in the Pharisees, particularly if we're going to focus on them, they have this faith, this works righteousness, and that even will be stripped away. They don't have faith in Jesus already, so they don't have it. And even what they do have, the, faith that they, the, the false faith, the false gospel they're holding on to will be stripped away, be revealed as insufficient, be revealed as broken, be revealed as not enough to uh, save them. And so he says, this is why I speak to them in parables, because looking, they do not see. Hearing, they do not listen or understand the solidification of their rejection of the Messiah is in view here, right? Their hearts have already rejected him. Um, they have no faith. And so he speaks to them because they, about them in this way because they don't see and they don't understand. And he uses Isaiah's prophecy here as a, a model an explanation for his own ministry. As you know, Isaiah came a long time before Jesus. But you see, and we're going to see the connections here and unpack this a little bit of how Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah's ministry um, foretold Christ and Jesus' ministry. is actually reenacting his ministry in in a different way as the Messiah. And so you can see that their minds are made up and the parables sort of distill who's who. So if we look at verse 14, Isaiah's prophecy is fulfilled in them. And then he has this long quote here. You will listen and listen, but never understand. You will look and look, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown callous. Their ears are hard of hearing. And they have shut their eyes; otherwise, they might see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn back, and I would heal them. So we go back to verse in, in verse fourteen. You will listen and listen, but never understand. Um, it's just their their minds are made up; they they are blinded. So it's it's difficult, right? What's true? Are they blind, or is, did God blind them? Or and, and we're going to get to this in a minute. But it's it's really two sides of the same coin that are heart hardened hearts. Are hardened and as God reveals Himself and and if we don't soften, we continue to reject God. The, the, the idea of their sh- eyes are shut. You see intentionality there, right on their on their human side. Verse fifteen: They have shut their eyes; their ears are hard of hearing. And so I, I'm reminded of this in in the context of Matthew. We look back on twelve thirty two and I, we remember this sometimes confusing phrase about the against the Holy Spirit the. If someone speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or the one to come. And what Pastor Ryan unpacked for us when we went through this was the rejection of the works of the Spirit as seen and evidence in Jesus' ministry. People rejected Jesus, and thus that will not be forgiven. A rejection of the, what the Pharisees were doing. A uh, rejection of Jesus is what the Pharisees were doing. They were guilty of turning off their hearts to Jesus. And so, verse 15 other, this word otherwise, that turn there in the middle, otherwise they might see. So it's this judgment that if it wasn't for this blinding and their hardening of their hearts, their own doing and my doing through in judgment, their hearts will uh, have been hardened. And so otherwise they would have been healed. And so I, and I think this is sort of connected to verse chapter twelve thirty two and in the the unforgiving, the unforgivable sin of rejecting God, rejecting Jesus in, um, in in his earthly ministry, what the Pharisees were guilty of. And to understand this a little more, we have to understand Isaiah, right? And, and understand the very popular passage in the beginning of chapter 6 in Isaiah, where he comes into the throne room, or comes into the temple just to pray, and is curious about, you know, what's going on, God? The king just died, I don't know what's going on. And God just comes out and reveals himself, and he says, Woe is me. I am undone. I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm with people of unclean lips. My eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. I'm dead. And he lays face down, and God says, no. He said, and he takes the the coal from the altar, the sacrificial altar, places it on his lips, and he's purified. And Isaiah says, wow, like that. I didn't expect that, right? And and God says, who am I going to send to my people? Who will go for us? And in the famous Verse, here am I, send me. And we're like, oh, and so nicely. Isaiah just was forgiven, and he's ready to just go be a good missionary, right? But then we have this passage, which is, hey, Isaiah, go tell the people. And guess what? They will not listen to you. Go share the, the, the good news. Go share the message that I want them to repent. Turn from their idolatry, because they're going to be judged. Tell them, but guess what? None of them will listen to you. And it's just confusing and uh, like kind of a buzzkill, but the sense that, Isaiah, though, was grounded and rooted in who he was and his calling, like that vision must have really helped him proclaim the, the, the good news to proclaim the news of repentance to the people of israel and so when we when we get to this here in, in Isaiah six, God is telling him this people will not listen, the people will not listen and I just want to turn in I just want to read the last few verses of that of that chapter because it actually refers i believe there are some uh, something for us that refers to us for to our passage this morning so as he says "Hear my i send me and then we have the, the verses we just read they will not turn back um they will deafen their ears and their blind eyes will be blind otherwise they might see with their eyes hear with their ears understand with their minds turn back and be healed and then isaiah says until when and he replied until the cities lie in ruins without inhabitants houses are without people the land is ruined and desolate And the Lord drives the people far away, leaving great emptiness in the land, right? So exile is the result of the hardening of hearts. But then, though a tenth will remain in the land, there will be a remnant, right? It will be burned again, like the terebinth or the oak that leaves a stump when felled. And catch this, the holy seed is the stump. The holy seed is in the stump. So it refers back to where Isaiah's ministry was hardening Israel, and they turned, but what's in Isaiah, if we keep reading, through judgment, through the judgment and the exile, there is hope. On the other side is hope. That seed is the charred stump of the tree, and that will sprout again, bring new life. So the stories are similar, right? The rejected prophet, and then people are judged for rejecting that prophet, but then there's renewal. There's new life, and here it reaches this climax in Jesus, He's the sower. He has come back to spread that seed of good news, to bring new life. And he comes to rescue his people, not in this blaze of glory that just destroys the Roman Empire here, but the sowing of seed. He comes to sow seed, to bring that long, promised, prophetic word of God that will bring new life, the message of the kingdom. He brings a new creation. That is the work of the Messiah. And so this Isaiah quote is very important for us to understand and to, to understand and see how it works here. Um, and it doesn't talk about uh, anyone who's able to hear and respond to grace. That judgment was coming for those people. So the pessimism of Isaiah is only one part of the truth that in, in the New Testament here. We have to get to verse 13 to see the end. And also to see how the parable has good news for us as well. And so there isn't an issue with the sower. Right, We see that. There isn't an issue with the sower. There's an issue with the hearts of the people. There's an issue with the soil that, and the hearts that are not receptive to Christ. And so we might ask, like, how is this fair? right? And I would encourage you refer you to Romans 9 through 11. I'm not going to get into all the, all the questions that we might have, because really this text does not seek to ask those questions or answer those questions. Um, but this distinction between the divine decree and the will of God and then Human responsibility is one we, we want to understand, right? We want to look into that. And sometimes we want it to be either or. And that's just not clearly laid out. We want our answers and that's not clearly laid out. We see nothing happens without God, right? Nothing happens without God. And yet, there are things that are attributed to human will. Even demonic will, as we see, we'll see. And so, if, we remember, if you remember Romans 9... That he talks about Pharaoh, and if you look, remember the story of Pharaoh, he hardened his heart to God, but God also hardened him, and it's, it's sort of a both-and thing. He hardened his heart, God acts also to harden him even more, and so as we consider what this means for us, before we get into the explanation and, and Jesus' explanation here, we have to recognize it is a cause for worship, a cause for gratitude, to recognize that our hearts have been softened if you are in Christ, and there's zero room for boasting. No room for boasting at all for us who are in Christ. If you have eyes to see, ears to hear, it is because of God's grace. And that's why fruitfulness is a result of God's grace. Fruitfulness is the result of God's grace. And like I said, the, the doctrine of election isn't laid out here uh, super clearly, but the, the heart response to this reality should be gratitude and worship. And the song we're going to sing here at the end of our service has this question in one of the verses, why was I made to hear thy voice and enter while there's room? When thousands make a wretched choice and rather starve than come. Why? What? Why? And we don't know. We don't know. Why me? I don't know. I'm a wretch just like you. We don't know why. But we're also God has pursued us, and we are beloved of Christ. And that is a reason and a cause for worship, a cause to respond in gratitude. And thankfulness. This is a gift. And we are to offer this gift to others. In our evangelism. And and allow God to do the work. But we have to evaluate ourselves. Right? Whoever has ears to hear. Hear. Listen. Right? That cryptic saying. If you have ears to hear. Listen. We have to be aware of our hearts. To continue. To press into God's grace. To soften our hearts. Which ties into verse 16. And verse 17. Verse 16 and 17, blessed are you, are your eyes, because they do see, and your ears, because they do hear. For truly, I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see the things you see, but didn't see them. To hear the things you hear, but didn't hear them. Blessed are you. It's not a choice. It's not saying, hey, be blessed. Like, make yourself blessed. That's not what that means. The same thing with in the Beatitudes. It's not, blessed are you who are uh, poor, or blessed are the weak, or meek, or blessed are... Those who are suffering, right? It's not saying, okay, now i got to be blessed and make myself. It's not a command to be blessed. It is, this is true. Like This is just indicative of who you are in Christ. You are blessed because you hear. Blessed because you have eyes to see. It's grace. So this text and this parable is a description of just a reality. It doesn't really give us why. It doesn't, it's not prescriptive and saying, okay, you got it. These are five steps to make your soil soft. That's not what the text is getting at. Um, we are blessed because Christ has broken into our, our lives. And because the fulfillment for the disciples was happening right in front of them. And so they are blessed for because they have seen the thing that Israel has longed for for so long. So before we get into the, the last part here, it's worth just pointing out a couple of things that I already have a little bit. Just what this parable isn't. Um, this parable isn't a roadmap to get better soil. Um, it's just a description of what we see. There are other texts that we should read and should pay attention to, to fill in the gaps of how do I uh, submit to Christ? Like, how do I soften, how, how can I be softened to God's grace? Other texts challenge us to tell, to respond, and how to become a believer. Um, so this text isn't the one to explain that, right? Um, there are a lot of, it's, it's more like who's in and who's out, right? But, in Matthew's gospel, and in the rest of the New Testament, there are plenty of scriptures that point to how do you become part of the kingdom. That's the whole point of proclamation, right? So the disciples have responded in faith, and that boundary can be crossed to repent because of repentance and faith. Um, and so this parable is simply just saying, this is what is. This is what's happening in the world. And so we have to make sure we understand what the purpose of the parable is. That this is just explaining what is, not necessarily what how you get into being a fruitful person, how you get to be uh, a f- soil that is receptive and grows. So as we look in verse uh, 18 here, we see Jesus explaining it to them in his grace, right? This is a grace of Jesus for, the, for him to explain to his people. Um, so listen to the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word about the kingdom and doesn't understand it, The evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is the one sown among the path. So what we see here in verse 18 and 19 is that for hardened people who are already hardened to to Christ, the gulf widens even more. The one whose heart is hardened um, is vulnerable to the works of Satan. As we know, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking to devour us, right? And so if our hearts are already hardened and rejecting Christ, it exposes more, exposes us more, just like the hardened paths are exposed more to the birds of the air. And this is a dangerous place to be. And it's worth asking this morning, is your heart hardened to Christ? Is it exposed to the works of the enemy? And again, the solution presented by Christ himself and is throughout the New Testament. Not necessarily in this passage, but the solution is to repent, to believe, to submit to the love of Christ, to see my hardening is something I have done and I need to humble myself before the Lord to allow the goodness of Jesus that we sang about to soften our hearts. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, as Paul says in Romans 1. So to surrender to his love, to allow him to plow that hard soil, of your life, so that you can experience new life, the friend, if you're here today and you have hardened yourself to Christ, know that it is a, da- it is a dangerous place to be, exposing you to the work of, and, and the, the work of the enemy it's, uh, uh, exposed and vulnerable to his work. and yes, there is a solution there to repent and believe and to surrender yourself to Christ. And the next kind of soil, as Jesus explains it is in verse 20. The one sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. But he has no root and is short-lived. When distresses or persecution comes because of the word, immediately he falls away. This is more like those who are intrigued quickly, um, but it won't last. So there's no root, and the idea of roots here is commitment. The idea of um, roots fight against drought, right? The only way a plant will survive through drought is if there are deep roots, deep underground, that continue to provide nutrients, despite the fact that uh, the sun is beating down on that plant. The deep roots are the things that g- ground the plant and provide nutrients for the plant. So an example might be people who are obsessed with uh, just miracles, obsessed with spectacle, maybe power, maybe th- other things that are not central to the gospel. Even community, I I love community. I'm discipleship pastor, like I, I encourage community, right? But if we only come, if church is only a social club, if church is only a place to experience a spectacle or a performance, and I'm sorry, I'm also the worship pastor. We're not professionals, so you're probably going to leave if that's what you're here for. Okay, uh, if we're here just for the spectacle, just for the miracles, just for. Um, community just for something beside the gospel something besides gospel-centered submission to christ and living in a christ-honoring way um, it will not last the church is not a country cub the church is the bride of christ and the bride of christ should be devoted to christ in in all things and so um, that might feel boring sometimes and, if that's, and and thus, we, people might leave and might fall away because they get bored with the, just the things of the, the gospel. Especially when persecution comes, as this text alludes to. Right? So the heat coming from the sun is an uh, uh, analogy for persecution, for hard times that come. And throughout church history you can notice how persecution often galvanized the church, often brought the church together, um, has been a great refiner of God's people. And even when people are martyred, uh, the phrase, the the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, rings true throughout church history that we see that. And so um, we see this phenomenon paring down, distilling the people of God when things get hard. And remember James 1, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. right? And so... um, We get to really see who's committed to Christ because the roots are deep. The commitment is there. And so it's worth asking this morning, what is attracting you to Christ? What's attracting you to church? Why are you here this morning? What's bringing you here? What's attracting you to Jesus? Is it because of something shallow or something deep? That your deepest needs have been met in Christ, have been met in his sacrificial death to bring peace with God to you. Is victorious resurrection that brought victory, brought victory over sin and death to you, brought new creation into your life? Is that what's attracting you to Christ? Is that why you're here? To be reminded of that, to worship God because of that, to hear about that, to have your faith strengthened because of the gospel? Or is there something else that keeps you coming back? And it's good for us to consider this because when trials come, and they will come, it will expose the depth of our faith, expose our hearts. It's important to think about this, to be reminded. ...of why we're here, what are we here doing... ...and are we rooted and grounded in the gospel? Are we rooted and grounded in the truth? The next, the third soil, Jesus explains in verse 22. Now the one sown among the thorns, this is the one who hears the word... ...but the worries of this age and the deceitfulness of wealth... ...choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. But the one sown on the good ground... This is one who hears and understands the word, who does produce fruit and yields some 100, some 60, some 30 times with what was sown. We stick with the verse 22. A deep, we see that deep satisfaction in Christ is necessary over just nominal Christianity, nominal faith. And what happens if we have this shallow faith is that in, in this illustration, something is already in our hearts taking up all the space, right? There's... Um, worries of this world. I need this. I need this. There's a scarcity mindset. I don't have enough and I need to gather. I need, I'm concerned and I'm worried and I'm grasping after the things of this world. He talks about the word worry or fear uh, of this world. And fear is a sort of ordering emotion. The thing we fear the most is what we order our lives around. So if we fear the lack of uh, financial security or that's our ultimate thing. if, 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 Fear is we're afraid that we won't have enough. We're afraid that these people, this group of people won't view us the way we want them to view us. That is our ultimate fear. Our world is ordered around that and is taking up space in our hearts and does not allow the truth to sink in. It doesn't allow the seeds to uh, take root. And if that is a characteristic of one's life over time, it shows that the gospel hasn't actually taken root because those things haven't been repented of. Those things have not been turned over to Christ inordinate fear that isn't submitted to Christ will lead to this. And the fear of the Lord we see in Proverbs 1 leads to what? Wisdom, right? And so anything else that is feared besides the Lord will take up space in our hearts. That's why fear of the Lord and worship are so connected in, in the Psalms and in Proverbs because whatever we are concerned about most, will we order our lives around. And we are called to have the fear of the Lord. And so this is illustrative of the, the, those who have this, this kind of heart do not fear the Lord and fear about other things. The other thing is, he talks about wealth, right? Idolatry. Idolatry will choke out the word. These thorns are already there. They haven't been uprooted. They haven't been repented of. And so, there might be a, I had a curiosity about the gospel, but deep down, there is an allegiance of heart towards the things of the world. There's an allegiance of heart, that is, grasping on the things of this world. They suck all the energy, the life energy, And there's no allegiance left to give to Christ. So it's worth asking this morning, what do you value? You know, what makes you angry? It's always a good one to get at our idols. What is the thing that we really get angry about? And is it worth it? Probably not, right? What are the things that we overvalue? What pursuit has turned you into a controlling person in your life? What do you wake up thinking about? What do you go to bed thinking about um, ruminating over? What is sucking the life energy out of you? And it's worth thinking about, even as believers, right? And this is, of course, talking about people who eventually are unbelievers, but it's worth us thinking about, because Christ gives us life. Christ is the one who gives us life, and it's worth recognizing, where is it in my life that that is getting sucked out, the life of Christ getting sucked out, and we have to think about this and process this, and... If we, as this parable says, if that is the main trajectory of our lives, then we have never received the truth of the gospel. And it's, and it's those who have ears to hear, let them hear. It's reflective. It's called. We're called to consider this, and I think it's worth thinking about this more. And some of the discussion questions I have for I sent out for your care groups is worth discussing these things more as you apply in each other's lives and think through these things in your own lives and in your own communities. And so. One of the things we might be tempted to do as we think about uh, this text before we get to verse 23 is that we want to look at the difference. Like, why is this soil hard? Why is this soil with thorns? And like, maybe the background of the person and this and that. And I think we just have to take it at face value. We want an explanation. The text doesn't give it. This is just something to think about. And also, uh, it is a short parable. There are a lot of other responses to the gospel that aren't listed here, right? So this isn't an exhaustive list. Uh, there are just outright rejection of Jesus, and all kinds of other ways we can reject Christ and reject the the message. But just to recognize that that these are just a few, but it helps us understand why it's varied. Why is the response to Jesus different? And so um, we have to we look at verse twenty three, which is the last verse here. The one sown on the good ground. This is one who hears and understands the word. Who does not produce? Who does? Excuse me. Who does produce fruit and yields some hundred, some sixty, some thirty times what was sown? And so, as we see, surrender to God's work. The softened heart has huge results, has significant results. And it's really interesting. Among believers, not everyone is the same. It's all. This is all the good soil, and yet the yield is different. And I think that's important to recognize, to recognize that we, don't, we aren't called to judge that. We aren't called to compare that. Some it just, we don't know. We don't have a reason. There isn't any reason except that's just true. And so we are called to just recognize that. It's not for us to judge another person's yield, but to rejoice that there's fruit, right? I wish that person was a lot more mature. That'd be really nice. Well, how about we just point to the fact that there's fruit? How about we just point to the fact that there's grace of God being demonstrated and going on in their life? Because we have to consider ourselves, right? Uh, Are we producing fruit? We have to ask that question. We just consider all the parables that we'll get to, the parables of the talents and the vineyard workers, the different talents that were given, the vineyard workers who come at different times, right? This is just part of the kingdom of God, the reality of the kingdom of God. All are blessed, all receive the the reward. And so we have to ask that ourselves. Instead of comparing and looking to others, are we producing fruit? Are we demonstrating faith over the long haul, right? Planting, harvesting, all these things, this this illustration, it takes a long time. And we're not necessarily going to know. Only God knows in the end. And so now we get to the application around evangelism, right? Because we are to imitate Christ just as he proclaimed the good news of the gospel. We are to do the same thing. And yet we have to expect different kinds of responses. And are we okay with that? It's a slow process. It's hard for us to judge. The idea is continually pro- producing fruit. If you look at in verse 23, the one who hears presently, understands presently the word, who does produce fruit, right? So that continual production of fruit, that's the idea of that, that present tense verb there. This work of Christ leads to the release and the, forgiveness of, and the forgiveness of our sins. This is the thing that Christ has done in us. It is a grace of God. Fruitfulness is a result of God's grace. Um, and I would suggest to you that as Jesus is proclaiming this, he's declaring a deeper release and a deeper freedom from the exile of sin. And why do I go there? I want to end with Isaiah 55, verse 10, or verse 9. And it describes the re- return from exile. Just listen and hear the imagery described here in Isaiah 55, where the seed is the word of God, right? For as heaven is higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For just as rain and snow fall from heaven and do not return there without saturating the earth and making it germinate and sprout and providing seed to sow and food to eat, so my word that comes from my mouth will not return to me empty, but it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in what I send it to do. You will indeed go out with joy and peacefully, be peacefully guided. The mountains and the hills will break into singing before you and the, all the trees of the field will clap their hands. Instead of the thorn bush a cypress will come up and instead of a briar a myrtle will come up and this will stand as a monument for the Lord an everlasting sign that will not be destroyed The beauty of new creation is coming in the work of Christ and that and that this parable illustrates that This this passage in Isaiah 55 is the longing for return from exile looking for After we come back from exile, what's going to happen? Where's new life coming from? And God's saying, it comes from my word. And Jesus is the ultimate prophet who comes, who plants his seed, who begins the work of the kingdom through uh, sowing the seed and planting the word. God is the one creating his new people through his sowing. So this return from exile, this newness of life is what Israel was waiting for. And Jesus is saying, I am the sower. I'm the one coming to bring this prophetic word, this new creation. And yes, some of the seeds won't grow. Some will remain, remain in the exile of sin. Some will be eaten lost among the rocks. Some will be lost among the thorns. Mercy and judgment in the kingdom of God are taking place at the same time. And Jesus is saying, just because you return from exile, talking about the Pharisees just, and, and those who rejected Christ, just because you physically have returned from exile doesn't mean your hearts have returned from exile. doesn't mean... You have been truly saved. You must have ears to hear and eyes to see Jesus for who he is. And fruitfulness, lack thereof, or fruitfulness doesn't have anything to do, it isn't Jesus' fault, it's our hearts. And our calls to imitate Christ, to spread the gospel, to evaluate our own hearts in the process, since we have been blessed with eyes to see and ears to hear. And so our proper response for being brought out of exile, for being given new life, is worship. Fruitfulness is a result of God's grace and we're called to rejoice in that, to be thankful for that. So may we live lives of gratitude, knowing that fruitfulness is a result of his grace in our lives. Let's rejoice in this. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for just this parable and how it illustrates the new life, the new creation life that you as the sower have begun in us. And we recognize that it is all of grace. We recognize that we... Um, The only thing we have contributed to the equation of our salvation is sin and our brokenness. We thank you for piercing our hearts, for bringing us and giving us eyes to see, giving us ears to hear, even though on our own we would reject you. We pray that as we share the gospel that we would expect to be rejected. We would expect a varied result and we would not be discouraged. We would know that this is part of your kingdom work and your plan that is often unknown to us. May we submit ourselves to that understanding. May we submit ourselves in faith. May we submit ourselves to the mystery of the gospel that you've entrusted to us. May we be faithful to see that. May we be faithful to continue to submit ourselves to you to produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, We thank you for your word. We pray that you would do this in our hearts for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.